You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience And the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. Unsolved Mysteries No tale from beyond the frontier of mysterious Tibet or from the depths of dark Africa is more weird than tonight's unsolved mystery laid in California. A mystery which, for downright eeriness, rivals the imaginative writings of an Arthur Conan Doyle. Several years ago, I read a book called A Dweller on Two Planets. I've read the book, uh, written by Philos. Yes. Well, I also saw an article printed in a prominent metropolitan daily. The writer had gone to the slopes of Mount Shasta and had discovered there the same type of people that Philos had written of in his Dweller on Two Planets. Seems to me that I read something in the Times about strange, unaccountable lights being seen from the region of Mount Shasta. Right. I went there. You did. It's huge. It's hairy. And it's been hiding for centuries. I jumped out of the way and said, oh my God, this plane's going to crash. This thing came right across north to south of... Incidentally, I was a private pilot, so I have some familiarity with the airspace. It glided over my house, and there was... We saw it. These ruins could be the home of an ancient civilization, Atlantis. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. I got a cool package in the mail recently. It was a collection of patches celebrating famous paranormal places around the world, most of them in America. 
These were made by the monsterologist George Coghill, who's also behind some of our Patreon supporter tier artwork. They're amazing. Just holding them made me want to go hit the road for some adventure. But sadly, I can't do that right now. But the patches were a good thing. I wrote to George to tell him thanks and that I was going to put a link to this set in the show notes of this episode. And then he generously offered up a free set to give out as a promotion. So this giveaway of a full set of these paranormal patches is open to anyone over 18 with a valid email address. If you're a Patreon supporter, I already entered your email into the contest. You don't have to be a patron to enter. No purchases needed, but you do need to be 18 and the offers void were prohibited. Just go to bit.ly forward slash monster talk patches. So that's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash monster talk patches. All one word, all lowercase. A link will be in the show notes. But these patches, they arrived at a very opportune time because they're right on brand with this episode's topic. They bring to mind the geography of the weird. If you try legend tripping, when you go to these places in real life, often there's nothing special to see. But it does give you a, a picture removed from the mythology. You can see the landscape for what it really is. And sometimes it makes the places smaller. Sometimes it makes them bigger. It's like those foods in Alice's Wonderland. Drink me. Hmm. We're going to be talking to several authors in the next few episodes. Authors who are taking a look at topics near and dear to Monster Talk. But with eyes and voices that see and tell these familiar stories in new ways and with new insights. In today's episode, we're joined for the second time by author Colin Dickey. His new book is called The Unidentified, and I would call it an insightful primer on weird America. He takes you through both a physical and a historical journey through the places and people that have cratered the psychic landscape of America with potholes of the bizarre. We're only able to take a dim sum approach here. Small portions, but tasty. If you want the full meal, the all-you-can-eat version, you'll find the link to his book in the show notes. It's October, so I'm going to try to get out extra content for you good people. We need some chills and thrills. So stay tuned. But for now, let's get to Colin Dickey and some Monster Talk. Welcome back to Monster Talk, Colin Dickey. Last time we had you on, you were discussing your book, Ghostland, which if listeners haven't heard that, go back and listen. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a fantastic look at the deep and troubled history of American ghost culture in, in a way that I don't think many books approach it, where you look not just at the stories, but at the sort of cultural context that created these stories and how they're being handled now. It's really good. Highly recommended. So good to have you back. Can you tell us a bit about your current book and what it's about? You know, it started really broad, I'll be honest. It started with um, a kind of broad look at conspiracy theories. And um, as I kind of went through the research and retooled it, and I was, you know, trying to figure out kind of what the linkage was, I decided to jettison most of what I'd written. I wrote, I, I threw out about 50,000 words that I'd written and sort of started over from scratch. Because what I really wanted to talk Ouch. about was, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, what I really wanted to talk about was, was Bigfoot and UFOs. And um, and so... As you do. <laughs> as one does, right? Like, you know, like... like and was, we understand. I was, when I was writing about it, I was like, you know, like I had all the chapters and I was like, okay, and the last three chapters are going to be about Bigfoot, UFOs, and uh, the Flat Earth. And I was like, can't wait to talk about those. Those are going to be the really fun ones. I'll save them for the end. So I wrote the other two thirds and I was like... I hate this, the two thirds that I've written. And what I want to do instead <laughs> is write about this cool stuff that I've been saving for the end. So 
uh, I guess, yeah, like it's sort of a cultural history of, of our fascination with, you know, cryptids um, uh, from, you know, uh, the Gloucester Sea Serpent to um, Dogman or whatever, um, as well as UFOs and aliens. And um, and then the, the other part of the puzzle was the lost continents of Atlantis and Lemuria, because I felt like I couldn't quite couldn't tell the story of, of these other things without at some point mentioning uh, Lemuria and that, you know, that mm-hmm. that. As one does, as one, you know, you always got to talk about Lemuria. So I, I would kind of describe it as almost like a, a primer on American nonsense. The other way that I've been describing it, this is this is more just a reflection of how my brain works. So it's maybe not good marketing copy, but like, I feel like um, if Ghostland was really in some ways about our relationship to architecture, which again, is not a sexy way of putting it, but that's how it sort of made sense in my head. This book is is about our our obsession or our fascination with wilderness and and marginal spaces on the on the edge of civilization because I, I I kept coming back to this idea that you know Bigfoot lives in um you know the redwood forest like just north of San Francisco you know and like Area 51 is in the desert of Nevada just outside of Las Vegas like that these things are always just over the next ridge they're not like way out in you know you know, space or whatever, but they're not, they're, they're sort of like right where civilization gives way to the frontiers. And I'm putting all those words in quotes, but you kind of get the idea. Oh, I do. And I don't know if we've actually said the title of the book yet. No, that's but... probably a good thing to do. That, that I, yeah. yeah my Again, marketing, like that. that seems like a thing we should do, but moving <laughs> on. No, no, no. <laughs> so right. yeah, so the, the unidentified, I, I love the title. I think it's great. The unidentified mythical monsters, alien encounters, and our obsession with the unexplained. Yep. That's, that is in fact the title. Yeah. Thank that you. Is... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you've talked a little bit about what the book is about, but was there any particular reason why you've uh, researched and, and written this this book and about these particular topics? Yeah. So, you know, one of the ways this, this started was um, right after the 2016 election, when there was a lot of discussion about uh, the prevalence of conspiracy theories and um, and particularly about the way in which social media has really driven conspiracy theories. And I think that's that's very true. And I think that's that's way more true now than it even was in 2016 with the the whole QAnon business. But, um, but I was also a little uncomfortable with that formulation that like, if not for Facebook, we would be free of conspiracy theories and fringe thinking. And, um, so I was, I was on social media, I was on Twitter one night and I just, um, kind of was making this argument. And one of the things I just kind of tossed out there as like, you know, like to prove that this stuff really predates social media is I, you know, I said that, you know, like 14% of Americans believe in Bigfoot, which is a, phenomenon that long predates social media. And like, and I was like, 14% of people is not, that's like 42 million Americans. That is a huge amount of people. So, so what I wanted to do to, was to, rather than kind of chase the contemporary moment and sort of follow these, you know, um, you know, the QAnon and the Pizzagate and all that stuff, what I wanted to do was kind of take a step back and try and maybe do a more historical look of like, where do some of these beliefs come from and how do they evolve over time? And like, Specifically, like, how do they get terrified? How do they get paranoid? How do they go from being like a, a kind of search for like wonder or magic in the world into being something that is actually pretty disturbing and problematic and kind of horrifying? So that was kind of what I wanted to do with the book. Yeah, it's a great topic. It's a big sandwich yeah, uh, to bite into. <laughs> how, how did it taste? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was hard. And, and again, I mean, there, when I first started, it's like, you know, I, I can't do an entire book on cryptids. I just don't think that I have, 
you know, like I just didn't think I had like a book's worth of things to say about about cryptids. I didn't want to do something that felt too episodic. I didn't want to just like go down a list and say like, and this is the chapter about the Chupacabra and this is the chapter about, you know, Thunderbirds or whatever. Like I wanted it to not feel like a sort of encyclopedia entry. Yeah, yeah. You know, but at the same time, like as I was writing, I was like, I wish I had another 25,000 words to talk about Chupacabra and like, you know, like stuff like that. And, you know, and even after cutting 50,000 words out, the original draft was like 40,000 words over what I told my publisher I'd turn in. And she was like... <laughs> She's like, no, we, we will not be doing this. You must cut. And I was like, but I wow. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so yeah, you've, so you've thrown like, away 90,000 words. Yeah, I've thrown away two books. Well, at least 90,000 words, because there was other stuff that later got cut. I've thrown, I've thrown away two books worth of books in this book. Do you think uh, that you can turn those into future books? Do something uh, with them? Yeah, I mean, they, they will find a home in some way, shape or form. Um, although, you know, Good. it's, you know. Who knows what that will be, but um, yeah. but yeah. So so on the one on the one hand, I was like, yeah, this this does feel like I wish I had more space because there's a lot of stuff that I wanted more time to cover. But on the other hand, I you know I did want to make sure that it you know that it that it had a kind of narrative through line that kind of took the reader somewhere, and and in some cases that meant kind of leaving some stuff aside to kind of stay true to a, a kind of central argument that would cohere. You talked about something in the intro that we've kind of danced around a little bit on Monster Talk, and that's that's the idea that pseudoscience itself is an attempt to get the credentials of science by putting on the trappings of professionalized academia, but without the rigor of the scientific method. Would, would you say that's a fair summary? There, well, and I, I, I would. I would also say that in a lot of ways, particularly with the like cryptid hunters, it, it it's complicated you know like it's a real they're definitely you know and, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have, have talked about you know like the guys who are like if i found a bigfoot there's no way in hell i would ever give give it to scientific communities because it's like you know like we reject that stuff altogether and then there there are other people who are like no this is a legitimate science we're just doing it in a different way and like you know the whole founding of cryptozoology was an attempt to kind of mirror paleontology in, in a way. So it, it, there's like a spectrum. There are people who were who get into this stuff as a rejection of science, and there are people who get into it as like, you know, as, you know, kind of a literal kind of parascience in a, in a way. And mm-hmm. I think that, that that variety is kind of fascinating. It is not monolithic, but it, that was actually my follow-up question was, why do you think that there is this urge to reject science and at the same time to be science? It's, it's I mean, it's it's not just Bigfoot. It's, it's not just cryptozoology. I mean, you look at stuff like Deepak Chopra. It's like you know he says a lot of sciencey things while at the same time saying a lot of nothing. It's it's just mm-hmm. it's yeah. it, it's a recurring theme. Well, you know, and and again, one of the things I was I was really interested in in kind of researching for this book was um, I think that the the second half of the nineteenth century I think is a really crucial moment when science as a discipline gets kind of institutionalized, for lack of a better word. You know, the the first. PhD programs start appearing in the 1860s and 70s. The first professional organizations of, you know, science, scientists and like doctors and like, you know, these start to form and coalesce. And, and, and science, I guess, with a capital S, goes from being a thing that anybody with a microscope and some free time can do to being a thing where you, you need a PhD, you need a lab, you need grant funding. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, obviously, you know, like the, the, the places where science are at is at right now in many disciplines. I mean, yeah, we're not going to get new discoveries without that kind of massive 
institution and, you know, a lot of a lot of capital. And, you know, that's how, you know, new new cures for diseases are found and new planets are found and all that stuff. But there but there was, I think, a kind of backlash via, you know, people like Charles Fort, who, you know, becomes a kind of linchpin in the book, like uh, of a sort of like coming to see science as this hidebound institutional edifice that that had sort of lost touch with its true purpose and kind of forming a kind of reactionary bent against it. And I think that is like a kind of like a kind of unexamined through line in the, the second half of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Well, I think uh, you just mentioned Charles, Charles Ford, and I think we'll get back to talking about him soon. But uh, I just wanted to ask you about the kind of legend tripping road trip aspect of the book. Uh, was it your intention to to go and visit all of these sites uh, or, or was this something that you thought, oh, I, I don't want to be an armchair researcher. I actually want to go and visit these places and and uh, experience them. Yeah, it was it was funny because it started. Um, I have a friend who who makes a couple appearances in the book. Uh, my friend Jason Brown, who I've, I've described as a conspiracy theorist theorist, um, as somebody who uh, has been you know kind of into this stuff for a long time. And so early on, I and I had been trying to get Jason to write a book for uh, at least a decade now to to no avail. Um, so, you know, at some point I was like, all right, I guess I'm, I guess I'm going to do this. But I, you know, I, I, I had this idea. I was like, well, I'll just do a road trip with Jason. So we drove, we left the Bay Area into, we went out to of Tonopah, Nevada, then th- uh, to Rachel and through the inter- uh, extraterrestrial highway into Vegas. We arrived in Vegas um, four days after the uh, shooting there in 2017, which was Yikes. kind of a very bizarre situation. Uh, and then from there, we went to Socorro and uh, the Trinity testing site. It was planned as a kind of road trip through American horror and disaster and then became that much more acutely so when like the one day we thought, we're like, well, we'll have a cool vacation day in Las Vegas turned out to be a kind of different vibe. But like, yeah, so like, sure. so that was kind of the that was, you know, and, and a lot of that didn't make the book um, because it, you know, it, it just kind of didn't fit. But it was um, but it was fun. It was fun. And, and then it was like, then I, I wanted to go other places as well. I, you know, I got to say like the thing about Ghostland is like, you know, I got to go to like New Orleans and like Salem, Massachusetts and all these cool places, see all these cool, you know, downtown Los Angeles. I was having a lot of fun. And for this book, it was like, I guess I'm going to Darien, Georgia and like, you know, like these <laughs> kind of like Fort Bragg, California. Okay, cool. Cool. That's fun. Socorro, New Mexico. That seems rad. So yeah, um, <laughs> next book I want to do it. I don't know in like cool fun cities again. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Yeah, the well the Trinity site's rad, right? So. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean yeah, that was that was pretty. That was uh, a. No no no! I just meant you know r- rad. Rad, oh, yeah. Like yes, as in filled with. I'm gonna rad, just. <laughs> <you know. laughs> uh, have you guys been? Have you been there when they when they open it up? No. I no, okay. I drove by it. I took a UFO road trip or a paranormal theme road trip in 97. And while passing the Trinity site, uh, our car was, I'm not saying we were followed, but we saw a, a black unmarked helicopter. It was very exciting. I mean, you know, this was oh. 97. So right in the middle of the X-Files fun times. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so we we were just like, not scared, but like just you got to be joking, right? I mean, like, really? There's a helicopter with, like, no markings on it following us along by the Trinity site? This is bizarre, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's cool. That's cool. No, no worries there, yeah. 
Uh, (laughs) Well, I wanted to say, like, as far as some of the places you went, you, you, uh, in some sense, it felt like the road trip was like into the landscape of the weird, right? And in the geography of the weird, would would Mount Shasta be the Mount Everest for the New Age? uh, Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Okay, so right, because I was pretty far along in the book, and I found this reference to, like, park rangers... Mount Shasta Park Rangers in the 1930s complaining that there were a bunch of kind of new age people, you know, kind of uh, cramming up the mountain. And I thought, that's cool. And I'm so sad that that is no longer the case. (laughs) And then I went there and I was like, holy cow. Like, you know, like, um, you know, as I describe to people, it's like, uh, I can't remember I put this in the book. So I apologize if I'm over, if I'm using this line too much, but like, there are more crystal shops than bars by like a large number. It is a beautiful mountain town. It is, I mean, the mountain itself is just jaw droppingly gorgeous. And again, like I grew up in, in San Jose and I went to school in um, Oregon near Portland. So like all through college, I was driving up I five and I would drive past Mount Shasta. So I knew, I knew the mountain well, but I never stopped in that town. And I was just like, this is like, Every and I, I was worried that nobody would talk to me, but no, everybody had a story. All I had to do was like <laughs> sit in a bar or a restaurant and just ask people, just do you know anything about this stuff? And like people would, people were extremely forthcoming. So it was, mm-hmm. it, it was one of those moments where you know, like I wasn't sure where that piece was going to go, and then, and then I had that experience. I was like, well, this goes at the front of the book because this like gets to a whole bunch of stuff that's going on. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like uh, Sedona in Arizona with all the crystal shops. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it, these places that kind of attract that, that kind of develop this reputation as having a kind of certain kind of power, I think are really, yeah. like one thing that, you know, I, I went to, because the, the Sacramento River, the headwaters of the Sacramento River um, come out of Mount Shasta, and there's a little park where you can go and you can sort of like, there's like a little pool that is basically the beginning of the Sacramento River and you can hang out there. And, and I was, I was sitting, you know, people come to like bathe and like, you know, watch their aura and stuff like that. And I, I ended up talking to this guy who, uh, drove up from the Bay area, which is like a four or five hour drive, um, with his car loaded with, um, you know, bottles and, you know, jugs and any receptacle he could. And he would do this. He told me a couple times a year, he would just come up here and he would just like fill up, uh, his car with pure Sacramento river water um, because it was the only thing that, that kept the 5g at bay. And like, you know, it's a sort of like, <laughs> and it was like, I was like, I'm not going to deny it. that is, it is clear, clean water. It's like, you know, it's like the water that's like from the glaciers in Mount Shasta filtering through the bedrock. So it's like, I mean, it's great water, but you know, like it was, it was just, you know, there was just a lot of, there was a lot of energy from the people themselves projecting a kind mm-hmm. of energy onto the mountain. And I think those spaces are, they're both really fascinating to me. And also like, they feel very like, they feel like, um, like an unstable isotope. Like there's something that's like actively unstable about the whole vibe. So. Yeah. yeah. We, it, we, we haven't, we've talked about it like once or twice on the show, like why, Shasta is such an important place, and you go into a great detail in the book. So I, I don't want to spoil it, but um, I let's just say that that water is purified by the best technology Atlantis has. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that 
it uh, reminds me of a little local place uh, to Denver, and it's called the Mother Cabrini Shrine. So it's a Catholic shrine, and uh, I think she was she's patron saint of immigrants or something like that. And uh, anyway, the shrine is on this big hill, and people go there, and they've got holy water on tap. So there's a big legend to that and how the water came into existence and everything. And uh, But I've heard of stories of people going there and just filling jugs with yeah. the stuff and putting it in their cars and doing all kinds of things and thinking it has these magical properties. With with Ghostland, there's this this uh, book, Gaston Bachelard's The Poetics of Space, which I, I, you guys probably know. Um, but he talks about when you were young, you like sort of you you project your dreams onto architecture and then it sort of radiates back to you. And like, like that's why your childhood home will have these kind of these memories. And the way he talks about it is like in no means a paranormal way, but I think also like just a way that we inhabit space, you know. And I think that like there is something about the ritual of going through all that trouble to collect this water that even if the water has no supernatural or metaphysical properties like the ritual process of acquiring it, I, I think it's fair to say has like changed something in you and how you, you receive it. I don't know. Like, again, I don't want to, I don't want to go, uh, go into like sort of metaphysical speculation, but I, I am always interested in like the processes by which these things come to be seen as, you know, paranormal or supernatural. Yeah. I think for a lot of people the this local water from this shrine has some kind of placebo effect for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But also, you know, in, in Ghostland, you're talking about, the way that we sort of map our stories to architectural spaces. And here it's, I, I think, you know, we've talked about the concept of the liminal space and in your, your, your premise is that, that the edge of society, the edge of civilization might be the places where we sort of map our geographical liminal spaces. But also, I mean, that seems to be the kind of thing that you can map to something as simple as we didn't build it. Like just a grove of trees in a park. I've seen yeah. people go do magic ceremonies there because in a big city that that represents to them nature, even if they don't realize that those trees were planted by people, you know, 50 years ago or 100 <laughs> years ago or whatever, you know, I mean, yeah. the, the, the sort of the sacredness of natural and unmanmade places, I think, is maybe part Coming of what's going on. Nature. Yeah. 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 I mean, an another way to put this is so, you know, so one of the the other kind of, you know, major characters in the book is Ignatius Donnelly, who is uh, the guy who writes the first modern book on Atlantis and, um, you know, who starts as a as a kind of manifest destiny real estate speculator. And then, you know, his like he tries to found a, a colony, a town called Nineger, Minnesota. But it's like part of this whole movement of, you know, manifest destiny of like basically, you know, the appropriation of. North America by, you know, Anglo and American settlers and the displacement of, you know, the native population. And you like what become cl comes clear to me is sort of the history of colonialism has like it only works if you invest a, a great amount of sort of mythological value and resonance in the in the concept of a quote unquote frontier, you know, this kind of place that is supposedly uncivilized, although usually it's the opposite is occupied by people that are being displaced. Um, but but you have to sort of create that and you create that through a lot of repetition and sort of cultural kind of reinforcement. And, you know, another reason why I think the end of the 19th century is so crucial is because what happens is the frontiers, for better, or for worse, you know, are all colonized by the beginning of the 20th century. You know, Africa is, you know, quote unquote. And again, I mean, I, I understand the 
the the problems with all these terms I'm using, and I, uh, that's why I keep using them in quotes. You know, but Africa has been discovered; it has been colonized. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, North America has been quote unquote conquered. You know, there's no more West, yeah. right? And so, so you you have you you spent decades building this kind of mythological resonance around the frontier for various colonial uh, needs, and then it has no place to go, and that's when it starts. Like, you know, you start to see this kind of obsession with, you know, Atlantis, which is like, what is Atlantis? A place that's never going to be domesticated. It's never going to be colonized. There's never going to be a McDonald's at Atlantis. You know, it's always going to be like the frontier that we can't ever reach. And, you know, and so like, and conversely, I feel like the thing, the, 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 the denizens of these places, you know, the cryptids and the, and the aliens and, you know, like those also, those are those figures both live in that kind of liminal frontier zone and also define it, you know? So if they're, if we can believe that like Bigfoot is out there, then we can believe that there is a frontier that we haven't yet fully domesticated in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so who was Charles Ford? He, um, I think his first book, which again, we only have through like letters because they were, the manuscript was lost, but like, um, was like, People on the planet Mars are using radio waves to control us uh, remotely, which is a which is a an interesting. It's interesting to me that that's the book that that didn't get published because that then um, becomes a version of the central story of the Shaver mysteries that then you know triggers the the book I remember Lemuria and like the UFO craze and all that stuff, layers within layers. But he cannot get this book published, and um, he gives up trying to be a crank in the sense of he gives up trying to advocate a specific like theory or something like that. And what he does instead is he gathers up all of these, these news stories, you know, and these things, he's just like, like it's a couple years after the New York public library opens. So he just spends his days going to the New York public library, reading journal articles, finding all these news accounts and scientific reports of various unexplained phenomenon. And he just gathers it up. And, and the book uh, the 19, his first book, 1919, the book of the damned, you know, his argument is like, th these, these are facts that are damned. They are, they have been sort of excluded from the realm of science because they don't make any sense and they don't add up and you don't have to advocate a specific theory for them, but they're still here and you still have to do something with them. So like, you know, he's probably most for people who have seen uh, the movie Magnolia, he's most known for this idea of like, you know, these rains of frogs, right? You know, that they're just every so often frogs rain from the sky and like, who knows? And like, you know, like, and, and most people, skeptics will say, well, you know, like what's happening is like a, a little mini tornado is moving over like a pond or something and sucking up these frogs or something. It's like a water spout. And I think Fort quite correctly is like, okay, but what about all the twigs and mud and lily pads? How is this, thing able to pick up exactly frogs and nothing else you know so like so that doesn't necessarily mean that there's like some you know i mean for it at his best he doesn't offer a positive you know or conspiratorial explanation for these things he just sort of recounts these stories and and as he says so like you you have to you can't just damn these from the record because they're scientifically inconvenient so that's what i think is kind of interesting about for is that he um He's not a conspiracist. He's not a crank. And yet he sort of is trying to open up a space for something that's a little bit um, more undefined, for better or for worse. 
Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. But he he pretty quickly spawns. Uh, pardon the frog pun. That was actually unattended. But the he spawns hey. a uh, <laughs> he spawns a, a lot of followers. <laughs> forty forty in societies. People really like they really like his stuff. Yeah, right. And so so one of the people I interviewed interviewed for the book, this guy Jack Womack, who's a science fiction writer, is a wonderful, fascinating human being, and has a huge collection of uh, forty in books. In fact, he donated a big portion of his collection, I think, to Duke a couple of years ago. And so there's like the Jack Womack alien library or something like that. But like, you know, talking to, to Jack, I mean, one of the things that, that we we sort of discussed is the kind of ethos that that Charles Ford is suggesting that you would sort of preserve a space for these unexplainable facts without immediately accepting the first explanation that came along, be it a sort of skeptical debunking or a sort of, you know, pseudoscientific embrace. Like, that's really difficult to do. It's very hard to hold these thoughts in your head and think, well, I don't know what happened, but it's fascinating to me. Like, you, you want to mm-hmm. kind of find some answer for it. And it's, it, it all, it's almost like a kind of, like, Zen practice, you know, to look at something like, you know, the Great Kentucky Meat Shower or, you know, the Lawndale Thunderbird incident of 1977 and not immediately try and either explain it away or embrace some kind of pseudoscientific answer. Yeah, we, we want to get back to the meat shower th- towards the end of the interview. Um, <laughs> no, we does. don't. <laughs> yeah, everybody does. <laughs> um, I want to talk about UFO. So, I mean, I know we're hopping through these topics, but the book is, uh, I think you do a great job of weaving them together in a sensible way. Um, also, you may get the feeling, if you're listening to this interview, that, well, this sounds thoughtful, but is it fun? I, I You know, like Ghostland, I think this is deeper than the average book on these topics, right? I mean... 
that's this is this is material that you know Karen and I live in. So you know it's 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 nice to see it treated as more than just a here's something interesting that happened and here's something interesting that happened. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, but you you dig into um, the Maury Island story. Can we talk a little bit about that? The Maury Island UFO case. Yeah. What do you want to talk about? Well, if you, <laughs> it's a, it, personally, I find it to be one of the best litmus tests for how someone is going to respond to ufology. Like if you read the details of that case, I think you're either going to recognize it as an obvious hoax. And if you don't, then you're going to end up being a person who will fall for anything in ufology. That's just my opinion. But I I wanted to know how you felt about it. I think that's fair. I mean, it's, it's really inescapable to, for me at least to read that and think this is an obvious hoax. Um, There are a couple of kind of weird kind of loose ends about that case. Like the, the kid who um, supposedly the, the 16 year old who got supposedly hit by the you know, slag the, falling slag from the sky, this de- dead dog, just, all this. Yeah. Yeah. And then just sort of disappeared in what showed up in Montana, like six weeks later with no, you know, like, so there are some, there are some weird things that, but like, you know, again, as, as my friend, uh, Jason Brown, the conspiracy theorist theorist points out, like the thing about Maury Island is even though it's an obvious hoax, it contains an embryo, like pretty much all the greatest hits of what ufology comes to embrace. Like it's got the men in black. It's got the, you know, it's got the mind wipe. It's got the, you know, the, you know, it's got sort of everything you, you come to expect in, you know, like a kind of nineties X-Files era. It's literally got Kenneth Arnold in it. It's, it's, got, it right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> right. it's got, it's got a mysterious plane crash where two air force guys died, you know, and supposedly they had some, you know, important evidence with them that was kept in a cornflake box or whatever, you know? So it's like, it's got everything you could possibly want. It's got everything except any shred of legitimacy. You know, so, it, so yeah. it, I think it's fair. It is this kind of like it's this crazy story. It's an obvious hoax. And I think you're right that it's a good litmus test. But I think it's also like just because it's a hoax doesn't mean it it doesn't radiate outwards in the culture in a way that like we're still like our pop culture is still in many ways beholden to the Maury Island story for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. That's actually really interesting because I think uh, Karen and I both come from skepticism um, and we spend a lot of time trying to say, is this real or is it not real? And as if you could say, well, this is not real, therefore it can be put to bed and that'll be the end of it. But but these things have a narrative power that lives long beyond the question of whether they really happened or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, and I think that like a, a lot of the a lot of what I found with these stories was like, yeah, they're hoaxes or they're, you know, sort of hallucinations or whatever. But they the particular expression that they took really tapped into something that just like latched on in culture. And that became way more important than any, any kind of true story. Like, I guess like, you know, another good example of this for me is like, you know, Kenneth Arnold, who is, you know, the first kind of, you know, UFO sighting over Mount Rainier and he's out flying and he sees these like nine silver objects flying. And, and they're like, they're, they're bat wing shaped. He says, skipping across the water. And within 24 hours, like kind of there's like a game of telephone and his his account has changed from them being batwing saucers to being saucers uh, or sorry, mm-hmm. batwing shape. You know, you know, and like you're like a batwing shaped thing is within the realm of human technology, more or less. But a saucer is not right. You know, yeah. like, why would you make a? You know, and so like so this kind of mistranslation of his metaphor 
becomes the thing that is sort of the singular image of the UFO age precisely because it is uncanny and weird enough that you kind of can't get it out of your mind. I don't know where he came up with that metaphor. It's like saucers being skipped across the top of a pond. What? What? Who, who does that? What? <laughs> It's weird. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah, it's so bizarre. <laughs> but uh, you also talk about uh, contactees and abductees. So, with your research, did you get a feel for whether a, a new religion is emerging from this field, as some of the the authors that you've written about suggest? Well, it was it was interesting. You know, one of the people um, that I knew about beforehand, and then I kind of went back and I was like, oh my gosh, um, Dorothy Martin, who. Um, when uh, Leon Festinger wrote about her and when Prophecy Fails, renamed her Marion Keach for her privacy. But this is the, you know, she was convinced, this is 1955, I think, uh, that um, she, was getting, she was getting messages from, from a friend on Venus who was telling her there was going to be a great flood on December 21st, 1955, uh, but UFOs would arrive beforehand to take uh, her and her followers to safety. And so, you know, they began to sort of spread the word and Leon Fessinger, the sociologist, um, and a couple of his grad students, I think, infiltrated the cult and then ended up writing about it, this book, When Prophecy Fails, um, which is where we get the term cognitive dissonance, uh, which they coin as a way of trying trying to understand how, like, even after, you know, December 21st came and went and there were no UFOs and no flood, um, you know, Dorothy Martin and her and her her acolytes continued to believe that this was a true thing. And one of the things I found really fascinating about Dorothy Martin's story is that she reads as identical to a 19th century uh, spiritual medium. You know, the, the sort of automatic writing from a disembodied voice, a, a kind of cult where uh, a woman was at the kind of center of it rather than, um, you know, sort of a patriarchal religion where you'd have a sort of male figure. And precisely because, as with spiritual mediums, like women were valued in, in spiritualism because a lot of the kind of affect, the negative affect associated uh, negatively with women, like, you know, hysteria and like, you know, moodiness was precisely mm -hmm. the kind of thing that was like valorized in spiritualism. And you saw that again with Dorothy Martin. And so what what it sort of reflected to me is like, yeah, the, these kind of flying saucer cults and these these kind of new wave religions really are not that different from the kind of, you know, 19th century religions and cults and sort of, you know, fanaticisms that would spring up. And really the only thing that really changed was like now they were about UFOs and space people instead of, you know, whatever they were beforehand. Interesting. Very. I can't stop thinking about those those links between spiritualism and theosophy and the early abductees, or excuse me, the early contactees and how that shifted to the abductees. It's all It's all very interesting. But let's let's talk about monsters for a little bit. Um, that is the theme of our show. I, I was, yeah. I, was <laughs> I was impressed by the boldness with which you took on the Patterson Gimlin film. Um, oh. You basically just said you think it's a hoax. Well, actually, you said if I believe I believe I'm quoting you right, it's an obvious hoax. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I feel that. The, the thing that really um, sealed the deal for me was in uh, uh, Joshua Blue Buzz, I think his last name is. And in it, there is, um, he quotes a primatologist who's basically like, look, uh, based on the cranial ridge of this creature, this creature is a vegetarian. Like, you know, that cranial ridge is there to support a large, broad jaw with a lot of molars for chewing up, uh, you know, plant matter. 
And if this creature is a vegetarian, then um, it needs a gigantic stomach because it needs a, a lot of space, you know, like a cow or another ruminant would have to like chew up that that plant matter. And you know, and and so you know, I think that that his line is basically like to the untrained eye, it looks really compelling, but to a primatologist, it's like not even much of a question. Yeah, it, it mixes male and female traits. It's got a lot of weirdness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, but the other thing I will say is like I feel the same way about the Gimlin Patterson film as I do about the surgeon's photograph of Nessie and that is they are both so crazily evocative to me. Like and again I grew up, you know, those those were like common currency when I was a kid and I you know like and there's something about the graininess of those images, there's something enigmatic about them. You know, like like the surgeon's photograph, you know, where you just have this head out of the water and it's like, you know, the gray scale and it's all grainy and it's just like it's sort of moody and melancholic, you know, in the Gimlin Patterson film, which, again, it's sort of like there's something about the way that the, the film is deteriorated in a way that I find really kind of aesthetically just like, you know, uncanny and beautiful. And so, like, I yeah, like I, they're both pretty much demonstrably hoaxes. I love them for what they are, even if I don't think that they're kind of true documents of reality. I've called them a Rorschach test for a long time because people see so much in them that I think it could be argued is you reading into the blurs and the blobs. Um, But I think a few years ago, a guy named M.K. Davis stabilized the film as an animated GIF file. And that kind of took the Bigfoot field by storm. Everybody was very excited about it. Um, and I love it, but I think for a lot of people that made it even clearer that it was a hoax because now you can see it looks like a person just walking across a field Mm -hmm. at the same time for Bigfoot believers, they have not been dissuaded by that. In fact, they've been like, no, no, no. Can't you see? It's obviously a real creature. It's, it's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I quote, um, Kevin Young, whose um, whose book bunk is sort of not related to this topic um, by and large. And it's sort of about a history of fakes and, and fakery, but he doesn't really get into a lot of this stuff. But, it, but the line that he has that I, I really love is um, believing a scene. The conclusion I came to is that these stories are, they satisfy a sort of kind of psychological need on some level for people. And, and once it, once something is doing that for you, once it is, it is satisfying that need, it's very, very hard to be talked out of it because you're it's not about this is the thing I feel about, like, you know, with like modern conspiracy theories. It's like it's it's necessary to know the, the, the actual facts, but it's not sufficient because nobody is going to nobody who is like signed up for one of these conspiracy theories or signed up to believe in, in Bigfoot or whatever is doing it because they have some sort of neutral, objective view of the world. And they think that's just how it is. They are looking for these stories, for better, for worse. And I, and I don't think that all of this is necessarily unhealthy or, you know, problematic, although some of it is. But, you know, they're looking for a something in the world. And this Gimlin Patterson film comes along and it gives that to them. And that's meaningful to them. And then once you try and debunk it, you're, you're, you're not just debunking the film, you're debunking their beliefs. And right. you're going to run into problems with that. Yeah. I think there's that sunk cost fallacy as well where you just – put all of your beliefs into that for, for so long. It's, it's yeah. impossible to see outside of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to put it. But I'm really glad that uh, Blake has left this question to me 
But uh, your book ends with a really intriguing image, a mysterious jar with possibly the last bit of physical evidence of the Kentucky meat fall. So back to that topic. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Possibly. I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty well. I mean, we're like, I'm like the Gimlin Patterson is a obvious hoax. However, the, the, the <laughs> jar of, of meat that fell from the sky in Kentucky in 1876, there can be no doubt that that is exactly what it is. Right. So, um, so, okay. So the story is that in March of 1876, uh, this woman, uh, was, was her, I forget her first name, Mrs. Crouch and her grandson are out and they look up and meat is falling from the sky. Chunks of meat, a couple inches in diameter, <laughs> falling all across her farm in about like a hundred square foot area. A couple of the townspeople actually try and like, this is the thing. It's like, what, what is going on in your mind? You're like, yes, I will try and eat this mystery <laughs> to see if I can identify. No, thank like, you. Science. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Um, and, uh, and neither one can quite stomach it, you know, but the thing is, is that like for better, or for worse, uh, this happened, right. You know, it's not, it's not a mass hallucination. It's not, uh, I mean, I, I suppose it could be a hoax, but there's just really no indication that, I mean, you know, the, the Mrs. Crouch didn't get anything out of this, you know, I mean, she just had meat all over her yard. Except for meat, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. You know, but like, so, um, you know, and this was a thing that was discussed in scientific journals. This is, a, this is a kind of interesting paradox of Ford is because Charles Ford on the one hand is like, well, science disputes or disregards the stuff and they don't take it seriously. But then when he's writing about the Kentucky meat shower, he's citing all these scientific journals where these various biologists and naturalists are trying to figure out what this stuff is. Um, and one guy gets a sample under a microscope and he's like, okay, best I can determine it is either horse meat or human infant. Those are your two choices. <laughs> right, exactly. It apparently looks similar under a microscope. Horrible. Yeah. Um, and, and so, or those know, are the like, only two other samples he has in his lab to compare right. to. Yeah. <laughs> like all, all like an idea, a horse and human infant. Um, so, you know, and like, so, so spoiler alert, the best explanation that we have, and I, again, I use best in quotations because I frankly don't believe it, is that um, it was vulture vomit, that vultures, when they are trying to gain altitude, will sometimes uh, disgorge the contents of their stomach to lighten their load. And so the idea was that there would be a, there was a flight of vultures who would just feasted on a hopefully horse, not hopefully, <laughs> um, but then decided to just, you know, vomit all over this, this woman's uh, farm. But the, the th and, and that's what, the, you know, most people are like, yeah, that's what happened. But like, but I, my thing is like, but there was no record of any kind of vulture flock like that many, that much meat would have had to come from a large number of birds. And, and there were no eyewitnesses of, of that like huge flock of vultures. And so, so I, you know, I use it in the book to kind of point to the fact that there, um, that like there, there can be things that like don't have an explanation and maybe are never going to have an explanation, and that's that's okay. I mean, the the guy who basically is the steward of the last remaining chunk of Great Kentucky Sky Meat, uh, this guy Kurt Godey, <laughs> who's an art history professor at Transylvania University, he, one of the things he talked about is like he's like. It, the Great Kentucky Meat Shower could never happen again. If it were to happen now, we would know instantly what it was, one way or the another, right? Just because we have better documentation, we have cell phones, we we have DNA tests, we would just know, right? And mm -hmm. so 
part of the thing about the Greek, Great Kentucky Meat Showers is it's rooted in a very specific time. And the enigma of it is as much a reflection of its timestamp as it is what, you know, the biology or the science of what's actually happening. And I think that kind of, that's true of a lot of things. That's true of Bigfoot. That's true of the Loch Ness Monster. That's true of a lot of, uh, you know, UFO sightings and stuff like that. And I think that is one of the things I think is, is kind of an arc of the book is like a lot of these things are sort of uh, vestiges of the moment in which they were produced. And I think that is kind of fascinating and also kind of what makes them unique and special and fun and a little bit sort of strange, I guess. So they, they don't have like a meat fall festival or anything. You that know, would... I'm not going to tell anybody else how to do their job. I'm not going to, I'm not, you know, but yeah, I mean, and I will say, have you guys, have either of you been to Transylvanian university? No, no, but I sure want to now. Another, another faculty member of Transylvanian university just started going through all of the weird attics and closets of Transylvania University, which is like the seventh oldest university in the country. So it's like very old. And they found all sorts of crazy weird stuff in there. Um, So and they put it in this museum. The museum is fantastic. Among other things is a a Madstone. Do you guys know what these are? That's uh, oh, 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 oh. Is this another name for Bezor? Yes. Okay. yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, And it is it is perhaps the largest Bezor or Madstone known. It's about two feet in diameter. It's wow. It's the hairball of a cow. And, you know, I think they had to basically cut it out of the cow after the cow died. There's no way he barked it up. And it is striking and stunning. So there's just a lot of really weird, cool stuff in this little room that they managed to convince Transylvania University to let them turn into a museum. And uh, the great Kentucky sky meet is only the beginning. What? So it is open to the public. Uh, I mean, it was in pre-pandemic times. I don't know what. Yeah, the good point. Yeah, yeah. But you know what they should do though is they should claim that the meatfall was manna, right? Because oh, then, yeah. <laughs> then they can name their like recurring uh, meetup as a uh, manna fest. It's their destiny. Yeah, right. The Okay, I'm being silly, but no, no, I, 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 that sounds fantastic. Plus, I mean, the place is called Transylvania. You got to like that. So I know there's there's no end to weirdness of that place. And um, yeah, (laughs) highly recommend five stars. One of the things you discuss in the book is something we've been really, uh, well, it's been, it's been changing my entire thoughts on cryptozoology for about a year now. I've, I've really been kind of going back and looking at the whole field. And that is the question of cultural appropriation. And I've, I've got a quote here where it says, and I'm just going to read this from the book. I'm going to try because it's got a word in here. It's someone's name. Is it Snixahila? That's how I tried to pronounce it when I was uh, when I called him and he corrected me. And I, I, I really confess that I, I could not. So I may not. slaughter this. Um, we can spell it out. I, okay, I, I'm going to quote Mike it. Claudio <laughs> is, his, is his sort of anglicized name. I think he, he goes by that as well. What's that? Okay. Clyde, Clyde, first name, last name, Talio, T-A-L-L-I-O. Okay, let me try it here. If I screw it up, I'll fix it in post. But the cryptid hunters are part of this problem. One or more group of white interlopers who don't understand the histories or what they mean and who seek to use them for their own fame. When people come in hunting for these beings, they're misinterpreting our histories, he continued. They're not looking for how those stories work. It's not about whether or not that being really exists in the land. And I, this is something that's bugged me for a while because th- there's a thing where cryptozoologists will use things like stories about hairy men uh, as as a representation of Bigfoot, but they don't also extend that to talk about talking 
coyotes or talking foxes or or bears or any of those. It's just whatever fits their needs, they use. And whatever doesn't, they just dismiss. And I, I think that's really a big problem with cryptozoology. Did you did you find uh, – I know it's in that paragraph. Did, what, how did you feel about the, the, the sort of the factor of cultural appropriation within this entire field? Yeah, I mean it's a huge issue. And yeah, I mean as you, as you know it, I mean it's a kind of fundamental facet to it. And I, one of the things I find really strange is that – it's it's a little unique because um, you know there's a lot of a lot of cultural appropriation of native culture you know left and right from like sports teams to you know motorcycles and whatever, but what happens with with cryptozoology is you have people kind of mining these these stories um, you know which you know as that the quote you just read sort of gets to the fact that there is they're they're misunderstood as such but they're reading them they're looking in them for like forensic empirical reality you know so like if somebody describes a creature that looks like a bigfoot in one of these stories it's sort of taken as you know empirical truth that that this thing must exist and so it's it's a kind of cultural appropriation but it's a different kind of cultural appropriation than i think a lot of the other ways in which uh native culture gets gets sort of taken over by whites and if if that makes sense it's kind of a strange it's, it's a narrative appropriation versus putting on, you know, feathered headdresses for your Halloween party or whatever, right? Yeah, right. And it's and it's also like it's like a translation appropriation because it's taking it's taking something from like the world of story and trying to read it as um, kind of forensic empiricism. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, which is a kind of different kind of you know that's a different kind of appropriation and 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 it's it's you know it's equally problematic, but it's. It's like, yeah, it's like changing the function and the value of these of these stories for for a different end. I'm I'm, I'm sure we'll be looking at that question a lot more in the next year or two. It's it's something yeah, that's it's really interesting weird. perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess, uh, um, Colin. In closing, you're always doing something really interesting, and so we're curious about what's next for you. Um, I hope to have a. Good answer for that. Sometimes, you know, like that. Yeah. So there's there's some larger projects that I'm trying to see if if they're going to hit. And then there's a bunch of weird small things that I've been trying to put together. And it's sort of not, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but it's like I've got like at any given moment, I've got 10 things in the hopper. And it's a question of what's going to like, you know, what's going to fall out of the sky like a chunk of meat and be the next. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for for sure. Yeah. Well, again, no, well, you're. Sir, go ahead, Karen. Sorry. I was going to say, at least you've got some 40,000 words you could turn into something, <laughs> if, if nothing else. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that I cut from the book that I would like to find homes for. I, you know, I, as I mentioned before, I wanted. I've got got this great section about the flat earth, which I, I didn't fit this book, and, and now I don't know what to do with it. And I now just have like this, like, beautiful 15,000 words standalone essay on the flat earth that will never ever get published anywhere alas but you know it exists somewhere they should have like a like bonus dvd material for books like if you know like if oh, you yeah. if, if yeah. you buy the, the director's yeah. cut you get the bonus chapters as pdf or something so yeah well yeah. You know, i'm always waiting for like the book to be such a huge bestseller that the you know publisher comes crawling back to me it's like we need a sequel right away so you know, <laughs> done <laughs> if you could move you know several tens of thousands of copies in the next week or so i would really appreciate it you guys i would totally buy you drinks next time 
Hey, hey, that's what we're here uh, for. Let's move some paper. Well, <laughs> whatever, whatever you turn to next. Good luck. Well, thank you so much, and yeah. and thanks for having me on. I love talking to you guys about oh, this. Yeah, anytime. Absolutely. And so, so, Colin, your book again is the Unidentified Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and our obsession with the unexplained. Monster talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with author Colin Dickey, whose latest book, The Unidentified, is a fantastic and thoughtful dive into the endless sea of weirdness in American culture. If you want to take a swim, a link to the book is in the show notes. Check the show notes if you'd like to see George Coghill's amazing Paranormal Places Travel Patch collection. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store, where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next level monster enthusiast. Thanks again for your support. Our Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Have a spooky October. We'll be back with more Monster Talk very soon. been a Monster House presentation.